Well, you know, it's repeated so many times, and I almost think that uh, almost seems like, from God's perspective, it would be nice if he could take back some of these words. Remember when Saul did what he did, and we spent a long time talking about that, that here in 1 Samuel 13, but now your kingdom will not last. This is Samuel talking to Saul. The Lord has searched for a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler of his people because you didn't follow the command of the Lord. Okay, so Samuel goes out, he does his search, and remember he saw the people in Jesse's family, and he thought, oh, surely that son will be the one. But the Lord said to him, pay no attention to how tall and handsome he is. <clears throat> I have rejected him because I do not judge as people judge. They look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And uh, it's interesting when we take the whole Bible together on this, that all the way here forward in the book of Acts, even after all the stuff that David did, after these uh, early stories, that uh, the story is repeated that God removed Saul and made David their king. God spoke favorably about David. He said, I have found that David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And when we go through all of the kings after David, it kept being repeated. Each king, David, did what I wanted him to do. Be like David. So the command to Solomon here, if you obey me, keep my laws and commands, as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Okay, but in Solomon's old age, uh, the, all of the women that he had uh, turned his heart to worship other gods because they believed in other gods. And instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been, now was David completely faithful to the Lord? Now it's described that way. And we could go through all of these kings. For Jeroboam, I took the kingdom away from David's descendants and gave it to you, but you have not been like my servant David who was completely loyal to me, obeyed my commands, and did only what I approve of. David did only what God approved of? Well, uh, when we read on here, it's interesting to Abijah, it's the same words, but then it's tacked on, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So we'll get that little extra detail. Okay, and again, it almost seems like uh, if you go to internet sites and you just type in David, a man after God's own heart, uh, you will find more sites that uh, ridicule this concept and then uh, very accurately point out all of the things that David did. And if we make it into a bullet list, you know, we come up with 20 or 30 things that David did. And so this is used to um, really to ridicule the Bible. How could David be a man after God's own heart? <clears throat> well, let's pick up the story here in 2 uh, Samuel. And First uh, Samuel ends with Saul... And Jonathan killed on the battlefield. Well, Saul committed suicide. And remember, the man comes to David to tell him, and he lied. And he, he thought that David would be happy if, uh, if this man told him that I killed Saul, who you know, seemed to be David's enemy. But of course, David tore his clothes in sorrow. And all his men did the same. They grieved and mourned and fasted until evening for Saul and Jonathan and for Israel, the people of the Lord, because so many people had been killed in battle. And David asked the young man who had brought him the news. Where are you from? He answered. I'm an Amalekite, but I live in your country. And David asked him, how is it that you dared kill the Lord's chosen king? Which he hadn't. Of course, he lied about it. And then David called one of his men and said, kill him. And the man struck the Amalekite and mortally wounded him. And so just in this little passage here, we, we kind of, uh, we see the dilemma with David. On the one hand, you know, most people, and just, you know, 
whether we're talking Bible history or historically, when your rival, who is king, is killed, it's, that's reason for rejoicing. Now you get to be the king. Okay, and so we can admire in David here that um, you know, Saul and Jonathan, who both would seem to be ahead of him in line for um, the kingship, they're out of the way and he's sad about it. So we can admire that, but then does he have to kill the man, the messenger, um, who brought uh, the word here? Well, a few chapters later, King David was settled in his palace and the Lord kept him safe from all his enemies. And then the king said to the prophet Nathan, Here I am, living in a house built of cedar, but God's covenant box is kept in a tent. And Nathan answered, Do whatever you have in mind, because the Lord is with you. Now this is a parenthetical point here to our main topic. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Uh, But Nathan is a prophet, right? We could quote the verses that state in the Bible he was a prophet. Now if a prophet told you something like this, yes, good idea, two thumbs up. Um, Is a prophet always right? Can you always rely on a prophet for advice on uh, anything you can think of? Health, diet, exercise, go through a whole long list of things. Is a prophet right 100% of the time? Well, Nathan went home, and that night the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David that I say to him, You are not the one to build a temple for me to live in. So it's kind of, uh, oops, and Nathan had to go back, the prophet, and uh, tell David, uh, well, I was wrong. And so just on this little uh, side point here, just when we consider who the Bible writers were, Moses, uh, of course, now we're talking about David. It gets more shocking when we get into Solomon. Jonah, who was a prophet, of course. And you remember about Jonah, that um, he was so disappointed that God did not destroy Nineveh. And remember, he complained to God. You see, that's why I fled in the first place. I knew you were too kind. I knew you'd give in and forgive them. And then he went up and sulked on a hill. Okay, Jonah was a prophet. Didn't like his message, though. Peter, we like to talk about, um, of course, remember the horrible betrayal of Peter uh, before Jesus died. But when we get to Galatians, whenever that's going to be, we'll read the verse where Paul had to confront Peter to his face and in public for his hypocritical um, attitude. Okay, but Peter... Uh, wrote a book in the Bible. It's a very good book. Well, two of them, actually. Um, but these are the, the people that are getting the message from God, writing it down. Yeah, let's carry this forward. Now, maybe we wouldn't consider these people prophets, but Martin Luther. My goodness, some wonderful things that we, we can learn from Martin Luther. But uh, did you know that Martin Luther had a nickname? Okay, and it was uh, King of Hops, because he really liked his beer. Okay, the, the point I'm trying to make here is not to not to denigrate or to put down uh, some of these individuals who have uh, given us so much insight. Uh, It is to say not to get hung up, perhaps, that just because people have faults and flaws that God can't use them to be a very important uh, messenger. Here's one uh, individual that I admire greatly, C.S. Lewis. Okay, but uh, would it offend you that C.S. Lewis liked to smoke? Does that mean that uh, his message isn't of value? Well, of course not. Okay, so uh, it's important that um, C.S. Lewis actually has a great book called The Screwtape Letters, and he talks about a new convert going to church, and the first attack that Satan would try to make on this individual is to cause him to look at the other people in church and to realize, well, if if this is what a Christian is like, then this obviously is a a fruitless endeavor. 
Okay? Don't get hung up on the faults of uh, other people. They can still have, obviously, a wonderful message about God. But, again, it's the reason we, put, we elevate Jesus so much as our example. Okay, well, coming back here to this story, why didn't God allow David to build the temple? And we have to read on to 1 Chronicles, and these, these two books overlap so much, 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. And David would say, well, it was my desire to build a temple where the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, God's footstool, could rest permanently. I made the necessary preparations for building it, but God said to me, you must not build a temple to honor my name, for you are a warrior and have shed much blood. And I think God almost did this because, um, oh, he's got all of this in here about David being a man after God's own heart. You need to be careful here to endorse David too much. And let me just put a strong footnote in the text that I'm not going to allow David to do this because he's been a man of blood. He's killed lots and lots of people. And this is kind of God's way of going on the record, I think, is saying uh, that that really wasn't my plan. Okay, but uh, God would give David a wonderful promise. When you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will make one of your sons king and will keep his kingdom strong. Okay, Solomon died and the kingdom split. And we can talk about that, but he will be the one to build a temple for me and I will make sure that his dynasty continues forever. And after this wonderful promise, even though David couldn't build the temple, he went into the tent of the Lord's presence, sat down and prayed, I am not worthy of what you have already done for me, Lord God, nor is my family. Yet now you are doing even more. You have made promises about my descendants in the years to come, and you, Lord God, are already treating me like someone great. What more can I say to you? You know me well. And it's kind of like, and despite that, and yet you honor me, your servant. Um, I think God looks very good in the way he treats some of these people in the Old Testament. Last year we talked about Samson. I remember Samson's dying wish. His eyes had been put out, and he has his arms around the columns. And his last prayer is, God, give me strength one more time so that I can get even with my enemies for putting my eyes out. Okay, that was his dying wish. And reading the Hebrews, chapter 11, which is the chapter for the great men and women of faith, and there's Samson. Um, Last year we talked about Jephthah. Remember Jephthah made a foolish vow that the first thing that came out to meet him after battle, assuming it's going to be a chicken or something like that, he would sacrifice to the Lord. Of course, it was his daughter. Very foolish vow. Okay, but he carried through, did the best that he thought, followed his conscience, whatever. Very foolish thing. And there you find Jephthah in Hebrews 11. So you find God honoring these people who seem to have just a shred of trust or faith, And um, so, again, I think we can say God seems pretty gracious. Uh, We often don't look very good at all. But now, after this uh, thing where God said, no, you can't build the temple because you're a man of blood, that was 2 Samuel 7. Very next chapter, I find it interesting what happened next, a horrible story. David defeated the Moabites. Now, the Moabites were people that had protected David when he was fleeing from Saul. They protected David's parents. And these are the Moabites. And this is what David did to the Moabites. He made the prisoners lie down on the ground and put two out of every three of them to death. And so the Moabites became his subjects, I guess the ones that lived, and paid taxes to him. Okay, right after God said, no, you can't build that temple because you're a man of blood. And then um, kills people lying down on the ground. Okay, this is why it's so troubling. How was David a man after God's own heart? 
Well, we've got to read probably the most troubling story of all before we try to answer that question. And I thought about not reading the story, but just as I read it again this week, uh, I think we can't just assume that we really know how bad this story was without reading it. So let's just read the passage here about David and Bathsheba. In the spring, the time when kings go out to battle. Now that says something, doesn't it? Well, it's spring, time to go out and fight. (laughs) David sent Joab, his mercenaries, and Israel's army to war. They destroyed the Ammonites and attacked Rabbah while David stayed in Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the royal palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and she was very pretty. David sent someone to ask about the woman. The man said, she's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he went to bed with her. She had just cleansed herself after her monthly period. Then she went home. The woman had become pregnant. So she sent someone to tell David that she was pregnant. Then David sent a messenger to Joab, has an idea, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the troops were and how the war was going. Go home, David said to Uriah, and wash your feet. Of course, he's hoping that um, he'll have intercourse with his wife, and then David will be off the hook. And Uriah left the royal palace, and the king sent a present to him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the royal palace among his superior's mercenaries. He didn't go home. When David told him, Uriah, uh, you didn't go home. And he asked him, uh, didn't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah answered David, well, the ark and the army of Israel and Judah are in temporary shelters, and my commander Joab and your majesty's mercenaries are living in the field. Should I then go to my house to eat and drink and go to bed with my wife? I solemnly swear, as sure as you're living, I won't do this. He was really a good person, it would seem. And David said to Uriah, Well, then stay here today, and tomorrow I'll send you back. Of course, he tried this twice. He got him drunk, did everything he could. It wasn't working. So he sent him back to battle. And so Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. David summoned him, ate and drank with him, got him drunk. But that evening, Uriah went down to to lie down on his bed among his superior's mercenaries. He didn't go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In the letter, now Uriah is delivering the letter. He wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is heaviest, then abandon him so that he'll be struck down and die. Since Joab had kept the city under observation, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the experienced warriors were. The men of the city came out and fought Joab. Some of the people, namely some of David's mercenaries, fell and died, including Uriah the Hittite. Then Joab sent a messenger to report to David all the details of the battle, and he commanded the messenger, When you finish telling the king about the battle, the king may become angry. He might ask you, Why did you go so close to the wall? If the king asks this, then say, Your man Uriah the Hittite is also dead. The messenger left, and when he arrived, he reported to David everything Joab told him to say. The messenger said, Their men overpowered us and came to attack us in the field. Then we forced them back to the entrance of the city gate. The archers on the wall shot down at your mercenaries, and some of your majesty's mercenaries died. And I think he didn't want to wait, perhaps, with this, so he just interjected here. And your man Uriah the Hittite also is dead. David said to the messenger, This is what you are to say to Joab. I mean, this is really despicable here. They're talking in a way that people wouldn't know what they're saying to each other. 
Well, don't let this thing trouble you, because a sword can kill one person as easily as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for him. When her mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to his home, and she became his wife. And then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord considered David's actions evil. Okay? Do you think so? Well, that's... Uh, Again, about one of the worst stories, certainly of uh, heroes in the Bible, um, it's an awful story. Well, it's, um, I think, even worse when we consider who Uriah was. This isn't just some no-named uh, individual. Okay, Uriah, if we put together everything we learn about Uriah here in Chronicles, when you read the list of the men who traveled with David when they were fleeing from Saul, remember only just a few hundred men, that Uriah was one of those people. Okay, so the list of David's famous soldiers, together with the rest of the people of Israel, they helped him become king, as the Lord had promised. They kept his kingdom strong. And we go through the list, a short list, of people who were David's friends right by his side. And there is Uriah the Hittite. So David knew Uriah very well. I mean, even worse to do this to uh, an individual like this. And now, even to magnify what a big deal this was from God's perspective... I mean, how did the people look on David? Who was David? Well, here we have a citizen who would describe David, well, the king, he's like God's angel and can distinguish good from evil. I mean, the king was God's representative. And certainly this story got out. And so, again, from God's perspective, God's reputation, um, this is devastating. You have the king doing these kinds of things. Well, uh, the way God chose to resolve this situation, um, brilliant. The Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan went to him and said, There were two men who lived in the same town. One was rich, the other poor. The rich man had many cattle and sheep, while the poor man had only one lamb, which he had bought. He took care of it, and it grew up in his home with his children. He would feed it some of his own food, let it drink from his cup, and hold it in his lap. The lamb was like a daughter to him. One day a visitor arrived at the rich man's home. The rich man didn't want to kill one of his own animals to fix a meal for him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared a meal for his guest. David became very angry at the rich man and said, I swear by the living Lord that the man who did this ought to die. We kind of maybe expect that response from David. For having done such a cruel thing, he must pay back four times as much as he took. And of course, he's... uh, condemned himself with these words. Now, how would you like to be Nathan? I mean, in those days, if you delivered a message like this to a king, you know, it's off with your head. I just wonder how Nathan said this. Trembling? Was he bold? But Nathan said, you are that man. And this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I made you king of Israel and rescued you from Saul. I gave you his kingdom and his wives. I made you king over Israel and Judah. If this had not been enough, I would have given you twice as much. Why then have you disobeyed my commands? Why did you do this evil thing? You had Uriah killed in battle. You let the Ammonites kill him. And then you took his wife. Now in every generation, some of your descendants will die a violent death because you have disobeyed me and have taken Uriah's wife. I swear to you that I will cause someone from your own family to bring trouble on you. You will see see it when I take your wives from you and give them to another man. And he will have intercourse with them in broad daylight. 
You sinned in secret, but I will make this happen in broad daylight for all Israel to see. Now, um, remember our earlier Bible study where we went through the books of Samuel, and God does everything in Samuel. Sends evil spirits. Um, he's responsible for everything. Okay? He, sent, he tempted David to give a bad census. And we read on in Chronicles, it was Satan who tempted David to give the bad census. Did God need to intervene to make these things happen? Well, I think uh, this is what happened with Absalom. And I think we could make a very good case that because of what David did with Bathsheba, when his sons did these outrageous things, and we won't read the story, but he had absolutely no moral authority to intervene based on what he had done. And so we have this horrible situation with David's children and Absalom who rebels. And I think you could make a case that this was a consequence of David being such a a poor father, such a poor example um, to these boys, rather than God, you know, going in and making it happen. Well, anyway, here's David's response. And our question is, is this really genuine? David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord forgives you. Interesting how quick that exchange was. You will not die. But because you have shown such contempt for the Lord in doing this, your child will die. Again, uh, such a difficult subject here. Why did the child have to die? And then Nathan went home. The Lord caused the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David to become very sick. And of course, the child died. Now, was David sincere? Again, how have others responded in a circumstance? We read Saul when he was confronted by Samuel, that Saul's response, well, I did obey. I didn't do anything wrong. And then we pushed a little further. Well, my men, they did all of this. They killed the best sheep. Okay, very defensive, trying to, trying to cover up. And Jeroboam, when he was confronted by a prophet, uh, seized that man off with his head. Okay, David didn't do that. He said, I have sinned. Well, was it sincere? Was this genuine repentance? And I want to go through a couple of different possibilities. Now, of course, many times in the Bible we see people um, accused who haven't done anything wrong. Of course, God is our best example there. But Job was accused again and again and again by the three friends. Uh, hadn't done anything wrong. No reason to feel guilt or embarrassment in that circumstance. Um, just reminds me here at uh, Vaughn's in Redlands. Uh, they have three checkout stands that are open recently, and they're always the express lane. They never have anything available other than the express lane. And, you know, when you have a family of five, you, when you shop, you get two big carts, you load them up. And uh, the last three times we've been there, uh, we get scolded by people that walk by. You shouldn't be in the express lane. Well, there is no other lane, you know, so uh, we don't have any choice. Uh, I feel no guilt or embarrassment in, in that kind of a circumstance because I haven't done anything wrong. Um, last time I, we went shopping, my wife said, are you ready for more abuse? And well, bring it on, you know, so that's just the way it is at Vaughn's. But in this case, uh, David had reason to feel guilt. The question was, was he just embarrassed? And embarrassment, uh, you know, if you were caught cheating or something like that, and it was pointed out to you, and you felt bad about it, the question is, do you feel bad about it because it's known? Because you're humiliated? Uh, Embarrassment would mean if people didn't know, you would no longer feel bad about it, even though you did something wrong. If you could just erase memories then problem is solved. And I think we can make a case here for Saul. Saul eventually did say, yes, I have sinned. But remember, the next thing he said was, well, uh, Samuel, could you please just walk with me, make a good show of it, make it look like you know, everything is still good? Okay? He's just embarrassed. He's not, this is not a genuine repentance. 
Something very similar could be fear of punishment. Okay, we can also appear very repentant if we're afraid of punishment. Lots of examples of this. Remember Saul, uh, again, trying to place the blame on someone else. Punish them. The men did it. And if we go all the way back to the tree, remember Adam was confronted. Well, the woman that you made. Almost kind of implying, God, it's your fault. Why'd you make that woman that tempted me? And then Eve is confronted. Well, the serpent that you made. So this is fear of punishment. This is not a, a genuine repentance. So what about in the case of David? I think genuine repentance, what does it involve? I think it involves true sorrow for the action, even if no one knew about it. You would feel bad about the action. And it would also involve a real desire to change. Well, how can we know? Well, fortunately, we have one of the most uh, beautiful passages in the whole Old Testament that comes straight out of this story. Psalm 51. This is David's response. This is his prayer after being confronted by Nathan the prophet. See if this sounds genuine. Be merciful to me, O God, because of your constant love. Because of your great mercy, wipe away my sins. Wash away all my evil and make me clean from my sin. I recognize my faults. I am always conscious of my sins. I have sinned against you, only against you. Now, this is interesting, only against God? Uh, Of course not, but in a larger perspective, as king representing, you know, uh, God's people on earth, uh, this was a great sin against God. Horrible, I think horrible things just avalanched as a result of this. And I've done what you consider evil. So you are right in judging me. You are justified in condemning me. I have been evil from the day I was born, from the time I was conceived. I've been sinful. Sincerity and truth are what you require. Fill my mind with your wisdom. Remove my sin, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the sounds of joy and gladness. And though you have crushed me and broken me, I will be happy once again. Close your eyes to my sins and wipe out all my evil. Create a pure heart in me, O God, and put a new and loyal spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Give me again the joy that comes from your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach sinners your commands and they will turn back to you. Spare my life, O God, and save me and I will gladly proclaim your righteousness. Help me to speak, Lord, and I will praise you. You do not want sacrifices or I would offer them. It seems like he'd be right out sacrificing that you are not pleased with burnt offerings. My sacrifice is a humble spirit, O God. You will not reject a humble and repentant heart. Uh, I think that is a very, very genuine uh, repentance. And uh, we need stories like this in the Bible. Did Jesus ever need to give a prayer like this? Uh, No, he never rebelled against God, never did these kinds of things. So we need the example of people like David. We need prayers like this for those of us who have all... Uh, messed up, hopefully not as bad as David here in this story. But this is a model example um, for us of of what true repentance is like. And I think I'd like to put this up as one check mark here. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Unlike people like Saul, when he was confronted with what he did wrong, he truly repented. He was really sorry. He he really wanted to come back to God. So that would be one point. Um, I think a second point we could make Again, we're kind of invited to contrast David with Saul because Saul did these things and God said, okay, I'm going to find someone who's a man after my own heart. I think we can make a really good case that Saul eventually was primarily self-seeking. And just three quick examples that we talked about earlier. 
Remember, eventually when Saul went out to battle, uh, made these foolish things, like a curse be on anyone who eats any food before I take revenge on my enemies. It's all about me. Okay? And then he went off and, remember, he built a monument to himself. Okay? Don't find David doing that. And Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Why was he jealous? David was a threat to Saul being number one. Okay, so these are all very selfish, self-centered kinds of things. And other than the census, uh, I would say David uh, very much was, was God-centered rather than self-centered, even all these horrible things that, that we're reading about. I think we could make a great case that the original sin, if we want to go back that far, was a self-centered, me, myself, and I kind of focus. If we believe that Isaiah 14 is referring to Lucifer's rebellion in heaven, notice how many times we see I, I, I here. How you're fallen from heaven, O shining star. You've been thrown down. Okay, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven. I will preside on the mountains. I will climb up to the highest heaven. It is a, it's, you know, the universe becomes entirely uh, self-centered. Okay, and so I, I think that is another point we can make in David's uh, favor that uh, he really was focused on God for the most part. So, again, we mentioned earlier that Saul and Jonathan were competitors to David, okay, from a worldly perspective, but he did not perceive them that way. Okay, when they died, I didn't read the prayer, but uh, his prayer here, you would think he'd be just happy when Saul died. And if he were selfish, if he wanted to be king, Okay, he would have had that. Does this seem like a genuine prayer? Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. In life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson, all the things that Saul is doing. And David is genuinely sorry. So, um, again, I think that's another point we could make for David. And kind of along those lines, I mean, kings just did not do this in this time. David is looking for the descendants of Saul, not so he can wipe them all off the map, okay? But notice what he's asking for. Is there still anyone left to the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And of course, they found a son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who was crippled. And Mephibosheth spent the rest of his life eating at David's table, okay? Again, this does not reflect someone who is jealously trying to maintain power. Uh, Again, I think this is another point that would suggest David really was focused on God, trying to have his world revolve around God's desires, not his own. And Absalom, another good contrast here. Um, You would think, again, I mean, what did Saul do with Jonathan? When Jonathan seemed to be siding with David, Saul threw a spear at him, wanted to kill his own son. Okay, here we have David's son, and again, doing the same thing. Absalom built a monument to himself. Certainly, he's uh, self-centered here. And when Absalom died, of course, David was overcome with grief, went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he cried, he said, Oh, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, if only I had died in your place, Absalom, my son. So again, Absalom here trying to take over David's role. And I think, again, very, very genuine. David really wished he would have died instead of Absalom. Okay? So... um, as a couple summary points, and then I want to make one last point. I think we could say that despite David's violence, multiple wives, adultery, murder, and we could make the list much, much longer, that he was in contrast to other kings of that time. He was not like any other king that you could find in this time. 
And I think we could say that David was sincerely repentant to God's correction. He needed lots of correct correction. Okay, but when he was correct, corrected, he responded in the right way. And I think we could say that David was trying to be God-seeking rather than self-seeking. And when we bring in the Psalms and we read the kinds of thoughts that David was having, the kinds of prayers that David was having, I think we could say that for much of the time, David lived in passionate search of a face-to-face relationship with God. That's always the ideal uh, held out. Moses spoke with God face-to-face as a man speaks with a friend. Okay, And so David's desire was very much along those lines. Psalm 42, I thirst for God, the living God. When shall I see the face of God? And we don't have time to go through all of these, but the beautiful 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Psalm 25, teach me your ways, O Lord. Make them known to me. Teach me to live according to your truth. I always trust in you. And this phrase here, I always trust in you, repeated so many times by David. He really put his trust in God. David would say, your constant love is better than life itself. And he was in relationship with God for, for much of the time. And this is one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 27. I have asked the Lord for one thing, one thing only do I want, to live in the Lord's house all my life, to marvel there at his goodness, and to ask for his guidance. So despite all the horrible things David did, he, he, really, he really was trying to orient himself to God, uh, to being in relationship with God. But a last point here that I think uh, sometimes we miss in the life of David. What is the warning to the final church here in Revelation, church of Laodicea? It is, I know what you've done. I know you are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And the Greek word here, emeo, is where we get the word emetic. It's literally to vomit out. All right? And so... There's one thing we could not accuse David of being, and that is lukewarm. There's no, he was hot or he was cold, but he was not lukewarm. And I think uh, that should be an example to us because, um, well, I don't know, descriptions here in Matthew 25, when Jesus comes back, uh, what is Jesus looking for? For the people, uh, you know, where are those vegetarians who don't smoke and who live reasonably good lives? That's not uh, what God is looking for. You know, the description here of the people are they're doing these kinds of things. I was hungry and you fed me. Thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger. You received me in your homes. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick. You took care of me in prison and you visited me. This could manifest itself in many, many ways. But what is, I think, being described here is, boy, you have people who are hot. They are passionately doing God's will in the world through service, um, They're not lukewarm. Uh, It's why I have such uh, hope for this audience here. I mean, uh, so many of you go into the mission field. Obviously, you don't have to go into the mission field to uh, uh, to serve, okay? But um, the the medical field certainly lends itself to, I think, uh, reflecting God's character. Uh, When you take care of patients, you serve. It's a wonderful way, I think, to reveal what kind of person you believe God to be. And so I think, um, you know, Mindset should not be, I just want to live a comfortable life. I want to have uh, you know, comfort, food, nice home, and that'll be it. That'll be a good life. And I think you'll find that's a dead end at some point. And it's better to learn it now than when you're 40 or 50 and realize that that actually is not, uh, not the right road to be on. Uh, I think to give all, to have a mindset, I want to change the world. I want to be hot. don't want to be lukewarm. 
And I think at least that's one of the things we could learn from David. For much of the time, uh, he really did say some good things about God. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, certainly, again, we see much to admire in you standing by a man like David, despite doing all of these things. And we just pray that we would learn what would make us people that are after your own heart. Help us to be passionate. Help us to do things in the world that really make a difference. Help us to reflect Jesus Christ to others. Amen.